Bayou hurried off to change, only to find on re-emerging that the carriage was still not ready. Anxious, lest he should arrive too late, he ran up and down the courtyard in a frenzy of impatience, imploring the servants to make haste, and when it at last arrived, he flung himself in it and drove off at great speed, hotly pursued by Li Gui, Tea Leaf, and the others attending him. The house, when they reached it, appeared silent and deserted. Entering together in a tight little knot, master and servants surged through like swarming bees to the inner apartment at the back where Tian Zhong lay, causing great consternation among the two aunts and half-dozen girl cousins who were attending him, and who were unable to conceal themselves before the advent of this masculine invasion. At this stage, Qin Zhong had already lost consciousness several times, and in accordance with the northern custom which forbids a sick man to breathe his last on the Kang, had sometimes since been lifted onto a trestle bed to die. Baoyu gave an involuntary cry when he saw where he was lying, and broke into noisy weeping. He held back his sobs and drew close to his dying friend. Qin Zhong's face was waxen, his eyes were closed tight, and he seemed to breathe with difficulty, twisting his head from side to side on the pillow. With the return of his soul, Qin Zhong regained consciousness and opened his eyes. He could see Baoyu, standing beside him, but his throat was so choked that he was unable to utter a word. He could only fasten his eyes on him and slowly shake his head. Then there was a rasping sound in his throat, and he slid once more into the dark. Once this, once this is done, we then proceed to the reunion of um, Wang Xifeng and her husband, um, Jia Lian. And maybe this is by way of contrast. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, uh, well, the thing is, I, I guess there's a greater level of intimacy between them because they are, they are already married. And yeah, presumably have been, been apart before. And yet there's a lot of artifice as well. But yeah, you're right. There's, there is an artifice to it. They, they're kind of playing a game with each other, but um, she greets him in this deliberately overly formal way. You know, so in the Hawks, she says, you have had a tiring journey, Imperial Kinsman. Um, this kind of thing. Will the Imperial Kinsman graciously condescend to take a cup of wine with his handmaid? <laughs> um, so she is, she is playing a game with him, um, and he, he does kind of play along. Um, and so it's a kind of, I think it is kind of a funny, sweet thing between them. This slight kind of mocking of the the formalities, I suppose. I, I do worry about that, Low, because, I mean, we do see that she has been taking a lot of liberties uh, with her position. And uh, she has been assuming a lot of authority in all kinds of different ways. Uh, and, and so the, the mocking of these rituals and, the, and these hierarchies is 
probably signaling, at least below the surface, a uh, kind of a will to power that I can imagine is going to be problematic. In the future. Yeah, and then she she spends the next section doing this thing of. I mean, this whole passage is quite interesting. It's quite long, and it tells us quite a lot about their relationship mm-hmm. and the dynamic between them, and mm-hmm. also of the two of them in respect to others. And so first she kind of tells him about what's happened while he's been away. And the thing that she focuses on is that she's had lots and lots of work to do in running the wrong household, but also she's had to step in and help out run the Ning household during the kind of mourning period for uh, Qian Shi that we've seen in the past couple of chapters. And she paints it in this deliberately kind of uh, self-deprecating way, which is interesting to me. She says, oh, I've done a terrible job of it. You know, I've made a real hash and everyone's very upset with me. If you speak to them, please say it's just because I'm, you know, I'm young and I, I did the best I could. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well, yeah. Whereas in reality, so far as we know, he, she's actually done a great job and everyone's been very pleased with her. So do we think this is some kind of attempt to manipulate him? Yes, yes, I really do. It is self-deprecatory, but it's also deceptive at the same time. The exacting one was her. Nobody was exacting with her because they were afraid of her by and large. Uh, so there's a lot of projection where a lot of the things she did uh, are actually being um, cast onto other people. Uh, and so when we talk about the uh, the tiniest mistake and they were all... Uh, laughing at you when in reality the tiniest mistake and you know you're gonna get beaten and your salary will be uh deducted for a month she was having people thrashed and and yeah exactly she has a kind of interesting thing of speaking in she stacks a lot of idioms in very quick succession yes um that i think are just worth reading in their own right because they're kind of interesting um as Mm. just pieces of language in themselves so she's talking about the way that presumably the other more senior women of the household have been. She says first that they sang ma huai, which is to point at the mulberry tree, but curse the locust tree. So that is to make indirect or oblique criticism. So kind of to criticize someone in a rather deceptive mm-hmm. or deceitful way. Um, and then she uses five in quick succession that all say more or less the same thing. So there's to sit on a mountain watching tigers fight, so zuo shan kan, uh, kan hu do, is to say, to stand aside and do nothing while others struggle. Uh, there is to stab, to, to, sorry, to murder someone with a borrowed knife, jie dao sha ren, you know, getting somebody else to do your dirty work for you. Uh, drawing in the wind to fan the flames is um, yin feng chui hua, we might say to, being impolite to stir up shit, um, but you know, uh, that kind of thing. To stand on the riverbank and look on. So, Jan Gan Ar. The thing about standing on the riverbank is there's the implication that whoever is in the river is drowning or at least in trouble. So, it's to stand by and do nothing while others struggle. Okay, so Mencius would be uh, displeased. Oh, yeah, horrified. The child in the well. <laughs> and to knock over the oil bottle and not write it, or, you know, not pick it up, basically. Mm. Um, it's easy enough to remember, uh, easy enough to imagine, you know, if you if you do this nowadays, you have a bottle of cooking oil, you knock it over, oil is spilling everywhere, and if you don't, you know, pick it up, then it will continue to spill, and oil will spread everywhere and make a terrible mess. 
So mm-hmm. it's the sense of leaving a mess for someone else to clear up. Um, and we, we've seen no indication of that at all, really, right? None whatsoever, really. So all in all, she depicts herself as very kind of downtrodden um, and the subject of really unfair kind of criticism from others. We don't have a clear sense of what Jialian is like as a character, but do you get the same impression that I do, that he's maybe a little bit easygoing and maybe easy to manipulate? My sense is that I think at a few moments, he's already been characterized as being a little bit loose with money, right? There's a comment in this chapter to that effect. I'm not sure how accurate that is. It does seem to be, yeah, you know, he kind of um, puts up with um, Shifeng really taking control a lot, right? So maybe he can tolerate it to a certain extent. Uh, There has been some question of whether he has been faithful on his trip, and there also might be some indication here that uh, he's easily seduced uh, because there's a, a lot of, at one moment, uh, Patience, Pingar, she mentions uh, Zhen Shirin's lost daughter, formerly known as Inglian, now known as Xiangling, who was purchased or yet yeah, kidnapped and purchased by uh, Shri Pan, uh, Shri Bao Chai's brother. And a an all-round bad guy, Shuavan. Right. She's only mentioned in passing, but uh, Shifeng has a definite. She uh, she has a a very negative reaction to her being mentioned, especially when um, Jalian talks about how how beautiful she is. There's a tension there, and that's probably an indication that Jalian is uh, has a fondness for beauty. Yeah, he's he's possibly straying. Um, so he sort of tells on himself a bit. Basically, Xiangling, uh, Kaltrop, this young servant girl, we hear that she is, you know, grown up to be very pretty. And the way that Jialian talks about her, he's saying that... So Xuepan, who originally bought her as a, as a servant, um, has been trying to, I suppose, seduce her. Uh, and... His mother has been the only thing kind of standing in the way. And um, eventually the mother decides, look, I'm not going to be able to keep him at bay forever. Why not make this servant girl uh, what what is called a chamber wife, uh, which is literally wuli uh, zhen, so an inside-the-house person, literally. And really it's, uh, it's something approximating a formalizing uh, of a sexual relationship between... I guess, a, a man with some power and influence and his servant. So something further down the, the, the ladder even than concubine. So you might have kind of f- full wife status at the top, then concubine below that, and then chamber wife still below that. So so it's not a... It's trying to put a veneer, I suppose, of respectability on the fact that he just wants to have sex with his servant. Yeah, it's almost like a, a sex slave. Yeah. Uh, that's the impression I got. Oh, then... Although there is a really interesting tidbit there that before Fortnite had gone by, he completely lost interest. And so it makes you wonder about the specificity of Shripan's sexual desire, maybe. Uh, um, a lot of the language in this section is related to um, hunger and greed together uh, in, in quite an interesting way. Um, mm. So I've, I've picked some of it out. He talks about um, 
first of all, Jalian talks about how uh, Xuepan isn't good enough for this for this servant girl. Um, and in doing so, he's clearly revealing how much he fancies her and wishes it was him instead. And uh, his wife, Wang Xifeng, realizes clearly what he's um, what he's getting mm-hmm. at, and she uses the phrase "yan chan du bao" to describe him, which is something like your eyes being bigger than your stomach. Um, it's literally your eyes are greedy even when your stomach is full. And she goes on to say that uh, Xue Pan is in Chinese chuzhe wan li, qiaozhe guo li de. So one who, while eating from the bowl, is still looking in the pot, <laughs> you know, is still kind of peering in the pot. So even when he has a delicious meal in front of him, is greedily looking at other things at the same time. And uh, then as we hear how Xue Pan has tried many times over, but so far failed to kind of get his hands on on the servant girl. Um, this has resulted in many disagreements with his mother. But the term that Cao uses is da le duo shao ji huang. So result, you know, led to how many, to so many, I suppose, um, ji huang. And ji huang is literally starvation. Mm-hmm. Um, but here it means kind of, you know, disagreements or arguments, I suppose. And so there's a kind of consistent theme going on of of a kind of food as greed kind of theme in relation to this uh, in relation to this young woman. There's one other thing that she says, which I think is kind of interesting, which which is picked up in the Hawks, but the cultural significance of it doesn't really shine through. So after Jalian makes it very clear that he does quite fancy the servant girl and would rather like to have her as his own chamber wife, quote unquote, Xi Feng says, I should have thought that having just got back from Hangzhou and Suzhou and seen something of the world, you would have settled down a bit. But the phrase she uses is Su Hang to refer to Suzhou and Hangzhou, uh, Hangzhou, which are two famous cities in southern China where, so they say, some of the most beautiful women in China live. And they're often used, they're often flatteringly described in this Chinese idiom, which is um, Shang you Tian Tang, Xia you Su Hang. So it's a kind of little rhyme. And what it really means is above you have heaven, and on earth you have Suzhou and Hangzhou. So these places are something like heaven on earth, we presume, for for men who like to pursue their own pleasures, really. And so even having been to heaven on earth, and and so there's a very strong implication there that he probably has strayed from the, the bonds of marriage, even despite that he's not satisfied. And it turns out that actually uh, Xiangling hadn't come at all. This was simply a improvisational lie by Pingar to disguise that Lady Wang or um, Brighty's wife he's what's her calling name? it. A- another servant's wife had come to pay some interest that she owed to Wang Xifeng. Are we to believe that this was in connection with the um, the incident with Jinga and the captain? I think it's, it's probably something from one of Wang Xifeng's schemes. Certainly. Okay, because I remember, I believe, was it Brady's wife who was sent into town to forge Jalian's signature to send the document to the captain's superior? It was, yes. And so I, yeah, I believe that's connected there. Either way, it's clear that they don't want Jalian to know about this side dealing. Um, mm-hmm. 
and so just you know uh xiangling was the first thing that came to pingar's mind uh and so it was just kind of a uh, convenient excuse they're worried that basically if Jialian did know about it, he would try to take the money for himself. Uh, and again, there's a hunger metaphor used here. They say that he's so greedy, he would spend the fat in the frying pan if he could. And so they can't let him know that she's got mm. these kind of side hustles um, because, um, yeah, because he'd end up taking all the money for himself. Yes. After this, uh, Jialian and Xifeng, uh sit and have some food and drink. Um, and then uh, Nanny Zhao, uh, Zhao Mama, comes in, and she is um, Jia Lian's old wet nurse. So we've encountered a few of these wet nurses before. Um, we encountered Jia Baoyu's wet nurse. I think she's Nanny Li, uh, Li Mama. And I think that was back in Chapter 8 or so. As we said, this is a common thing for the nobility for women not to breastfeed their own children but instead to have a servant who does it and this being a a rather kind of intense and unusual this is this is selling one's body through labor to a to a degree which seems i suppose extreme to us yes um nowadays and i guess because of that bond she a relatively lowly servant is able to enjoy a much higher level of not prestige necessarily, but she intimacy maybe. That's it, isn't she? Isn't it? It's intimacy. She has a she has a much greater degree of equality when speaking to Jia Lian. Um, I believe even uh, Xi Feng invites her onto the Kong. Uh, and of course, she refuses, but the invitation itself speaks volumes. I believe. Yeah, so she's invited to sit at exactly the same level as Jia Lian and Wang Xifeng. But she instead says, yeah, no, I'll, I'll sit at this other low table nearby. And so they have a bit of a, a discussion because Nanny Zhao has two sons. And because she was Jia Lian's wet nurse, her sons and Jia Lian therefore enjoy some kind of not quite brother type relationship, but a greater equality than they otherwise would as as the as the sons of a servant, right? And she kind of sternly upbraids him for not taking better care of them, for not making sure, you know, that they have jobs and uh, and things. Mm-hmm. And she's clearly using the promotion of Yuan Chun as a pretense, as like this is a an ideal opportunity. Because presumably, you know, with this change in the household, those new powers, uh, maybe new sources of income, and also new responsibilities. So this this really is, again, a transitional moment where uh, changes in occupation might be uh, presupposed. Yeah, there's bound to be jobs in it. Right. It it is pretty clever, actually, if you think about it. Yeah. Um, And so she, in a kind of joking way, criticizes him. And the the, ba- the the basis of the criticism is basically that he is he always says he will help and then actually never really does anything. She says, you know, it's about time to uh, make good on your promises because up until now, she says he's not really been as good as his word. She uses this very peculiar phrase in Chinese, which is. So, and you know, 
up till now, as of now, it's still just dry excrement. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is to say, his his promises have amounted to very little. So we we've had hard shit, and now we have dry shit. We have to yeah. keep track of all the all the shit. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and Wang Xifeng gets involved as well, saying that he's always like this. You know, he he cares nothing for his own, uh, you know, family and intimates, but is willing to do anything for someone he's just met. You know. Yes. For outsiders, they have this Yren, uh, Nayren distinction. Right? Yeah. So those, at literally outside people and inside people, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a sense here that Nayren is a way of referring to one's wife, um, and so Hawks does what I consider to be a rather clever play on words uh, to to kind of match roughly what she's getting at. Um. She's saying basically, you should take care of your <clears throat> your wet nurse's sons instead of wasting your kindnesses on those those little male misses of yours. I shouldn't have called them misses though. You treat the misses as your misses, and give me the miss, uh, which is, I mean, it's a bit convoluted, but or a bit kind of contrived. But um, the joke is kind of there, right? That that he's neglecting his family, and particularly his wife, in favour of people outside of the outside of the household. Um, and again, I think it's a it's just a suggestion that he's not been perfectly faithful. Anyway, he he takes it all in relatively good humour and agrees mm. to do something about it. And uh, just at that point, they get to talking about something called uh, visitation. Uh, or Shangqin in Chinese. So, so what's the visitation thing about? Right, this is really important. Yeah. So the the idea here is that, uh, like we mentioned before, you know, becoming an imperial concubine is a huge transformation in your life. Uh, it's highly restricted. It's highly restricted through kind of a ritual, but also through being sequestered in this. Um, this guarded space. So th- this is the gilded cage that we mentioned earlier. Um, but, you know, that can be truly like emotionally devastating. And so the present emperor who has, you know, a, a bit of foresight, a bit of sympathy, um, he had the idea that, okay, here's a new bargain, basically. You can go home maybe once a month on the condition that a special kind of compound is created so that uh, when going home, you know, there's the proper space for, you know, all of the imperial retinue to accompany, you know, Yuan Chun or whoever it might be, you know what I mean? And so... Exactly. There should be a, there should be a space appropriate for an imperial concubine. And by extension, if the mood takes him, the emperor himself. Yeah, I'm looking here to say to see whether there's an indication whether the emperor himself would come on these visits or whether it would simply be, you know, the imperial concubine and uh, a retinue of guards and attendants and officials, uh, presumably to keep track and to to make sure there's nothing. You know, it's again, it's a form of surveillance and security, um, which is really important for you know maintaining the bloodline and to avoid. Uh, any kind of 
Well, at this point, they it seems to be the visitation by the Imperial concubines themselves, but they get a bit carried away and, you know, I think people understand that possibly the Emperor may come with uh, at times because they get to talking about all the different rich families who had the Emperor stay with them at different times in the past, right? Okay, yeah, I was wondering about that because my sense is that the the conversation changes a little bit and they're talking just more generally about... uh, yeah, imperial visits. And presumably that would be even before the present emperor. It was a little unclear in the conversation because they were talking about, you know, back in the day and everyone's, people are reminiscing about their own experiences, you know, growing up and the stories they heard. The general mood is that there's a kind of this awe and, uh, you know, there's a lot of psychological power around having the emperor visit you. I mean, it, w- it wouldn't be that different if, you know, the president of the United States came to visit, you know, your family and, and he was attended by Secret Service. I, I mean, we definitely have our modern parallels, right? But you can really, you can imagine the kind of the psychological space and, and the distance even between these, uh, the wealth of these extremely rich families and the wealth of the emperor. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, And that's really a subject of kind of awe and amazement and also rumors and speculation. And so we get a lot of that right here in this, in this really kind of free-flowing conversation that, that follows. Yeah, so they, Nani Zhao and Wang Xifeng get on to kind of like almost one-upmanship here. Mm. So Nani Zhao says, well, I remember when the head of the Zhao family was superintendent of shipyards and and harbour maintenance and the emperor came to visit. She says, the way they spent silver on that visit, why, it was like pouring out salt water, or uh, pouring out seawater, rather. So you you get the impression, um, you know, you get a sense of what she's talking about. And Xifeng then says, well, we, Wangs, received the emperor on one of his visits too. We were very... uh, we were very important in our own right. Yeah. yeah. And um, and then Nani Zhao goes on to say, oh, well, of course, you know, the the richest of all are the, the Jun family, where, you know, we we don't even need to talk about silver for them. For them, silver was like dirt, you know. And that's the same Jen as uh, Jen Shin that we've talked about earlier in this episode. Yeah, and they're understood to be, in some way, a um, a kind of contrast or counterpoint to the... Jia family because Jun and Jia being homophones for for true and false or real and unreal. I wonder if the implication here is that you know they're the real deal, right? Like you think the Jia family is rich, they're just faking it. The Jen family is where it's at. Mm. I, I was wondering whether that's kind of uh, an implication here. I, I think so, yeah. And I think there's also a theory that the the Jun family is supposed to be representative of the author's actual family uh, and the Jia family are a fake version of it because I think in reality Tao's family did in yeah. fact receive the emperor four separate times and that's the thing that they say about the Juns here is that they've received the emperor four times and that you know whereas everyone else had had the emperor to stay once having him four times is really this unbelievable sign of imperial favor and also kind of inconceivable wealth what did you make of this one line? Uh, this is the final line by 
uh, Nanny Zhao. She says, I'll tell you something, Mrs. Lian. There was no more than paying for the emperor's entertainment with the emperor's own silver. No family that, that ever lived had money enough of its own to pay for such spectacles of vanity. Is there some implication here that uh, like the emperor is in a roundabout way paying for his own celebration on account of his, his, his massive wealth? Is, is the idea that you know, because he is a source of all wealth, maybe that in order to have, like, there has to be this kind of uh, this feedback loop between. I, I suppose so. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly. Um, but you're right. There's a, somehow a sense of like robbing Peter to pay Paul here, using the emperor's own silver to pay for the emperor's entertainment. Um, I, I wasn't sure. It was, it was a kind of a cryptic comment. Uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I guess in a literal sense, I can see what they mean because um, if you are something like uh, responsible for collection of customs duties or, or salt taxes or something, then the money that you collect ultimately is due to the emperor. And if you keep it for yourself, mm -hmm. then you are taking something that belongs to the emperor, I, I guess. But but I don't know exactly. You're right. It's it's kind of cryptic, and I didn't quite understand it. Yeah, like an a kind of economic logic where maybe in order to pay for these extravagant affairs, you have to maybe uh, adjust taxes or uh, do some side peddling in, in the process. I'm not sure. Maybe in the process, deprive the nation of, you know, a certain flow of goods or value. And so by implication, mm. you're actually taking from the emperor to the extent you're taking from the nation. I wasn't sure. Yeah, maybe there's a kind of. Uh... It, it was cryptic. I didn't quite understand it. Yeah. Okay. We next deal with the the visitation point, right? And um, talking about you know preparation of the of the garden uh, and or of this new area of the household, which is going to be the the place that receives uh, imperial visitors, right? And um, we know that it's the source of. It's going to take up lots of time and effort and things. And it's kind of a, a joint effort between the, the, the Ning and the Rong households, right? So part of the all-sense garden, the Chunfang uh, Yuan, that we discussed in Chapter 5, right? They were having a... Um, they were visiting the Ning household and they were having the party in the garden. And that's when Bao Yu gets tired and he goes to sleep in Chinka Ching's bed. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of that garden is, gonna, is going to be re reallocated. That'll form the, uh, the east side. And then the, the northwest corner was originally part of the, the Rong household. Uh, and so they're kind of, they're combining spaces in order to produce this new uh, visitation area. Yeah, and they're they're bringing together the Rong and Ning households, aren't they? They're 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 yeah. Where the two were once separate, they're kind of collapsing them together. Which I think is an indication of the importance uh, of this promotion, right? That they're both willing to uh, kind of work in this capacity because I, I think they're also sharing in the the prestige. Yeah, I think they're sharing in the prestige, but I think they're also sharing in the cost and effort, I, I, I think. Uh-huh, yeah. That kind of seems to be it. Um, 
And so there are lots of jobs for the boys. Um, among them, we hear Jia Chiang, who is one of the young men of the clan, is being sent off to the south, to Suzhou, to, in the Hawks it says, to engage music and drama teachers and to buy girl players and instruments and costumes uh, so that we can have our own theatricals for the visitation. So um, he's going to go off and, you know, find all of the right kind of people and materials and things. Um, and um, he's going to be accompanied by uh, Lai Sheng's two sons. So that's two of the sons of one of the kind of like wardens or, you know, senior servants of the of the house, as well as two of the the literary gentlemen of the household. Mm-hmm. So... As we encountered in a previous chapter, there's uh, uh, Jia Baoyu's father, Jia Zhong, is a, is a kind of Confucian uh, scholar. And he has some kind of hangers-on who are oh, no. um, educated men, but without means of their own. So they have to kind of bolt themselves onto a wealthier household. Um, so they're going along as well. And uh, Wang Xifeng suggests that he bring along two other you know, useful, reliable young men. And um, so Jia Chang says, oh, great. Yeah, absolutely. Who are they? You know, what are their names? And um, <laughs> we can see that this is a ruse to allow Nanny Zhao to suggest her two sons, who she was just complaining aren't being looked after. Um, but she's she's kind of half asleep at this point and mm-hmm. not really paying attention. Um, so it takes a, a nudge in the ribs from from patience from Ping Ar, one of the other servants, to get her to kind of wake up and understand what's going on. <laughs> and we also hear that um, I think Jia Rong, so that's Qin Shi's widower, will also be joining them. And there's a slightly funny exchange that I don't quite understand. Um, I wanted to ask your view on it. Um, where he's kind of surreptitiously trying to communicate something to um, to Wang Xifeng, and she's not really having any of it. He he seems to be saying, if you want me to buy you anything from the trip down south, then I will. And also, uh, Jia Chang is also doing this, right? They're trying to use their authority in this task to maybe, uh, you know, maybe cook, cook the books a little bit, and and buy some things on the side and, and then you know basically steal them like on credit in effect they've exactly so they've got a certain budget for right. the things that they need to buy and maybe he can see about taking some of that official budget and using it to buy some pretty trinkets or or whatever for Wang Xifeng uh and so you get a sense for the uh some of the corruption just implicit with this whole complicated system there's also an interesting mention of how how they are to pay for things on this trip and it's um we're told that actually the the Jia household has a certain amount of money uh, deposited with the Jen household and they can use that as a sort of a a, a local they're almost using each other as like banks. Uh, they can they can take out from their credit at the at the Gen household and avoid the uh, the difficulty of transporting large quantities of silver, which will be heavy and which might be uh, subject to theft on the on a dangerous trip. And so it gives you a, a sense for how um, 
the state of credit systems at, at this time where they, they weren't using banks yet, but uh, especially these larger households are able to cooperate in various ways to do something equivalent or, or very comparable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is pretty interesting, actually. And there is a sense, I don't know if you remember this, but in, I believe, chapter four, we're introduced to this kind of doggerel poem about some of the richest families in China at the time. And one of the things that they say is, um, you know, if one succeeds, then they all succeed. And if one fails, they all fail. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. this sense of them all kind of having each other's back and looking out for each other, knowing that ultimately it's in their own self-interest to do so. That's interesting. And, you know, that poem is mentioned in this chapter. It is, That's yeah. what uh, what Nanny Zhao references when she's like, everyone knows the uh, the great wealth of the Wang household. You know, that's where the king of the ocean goes when he's short of golden beds, etc. So the final part of chapter 16 um, deals with the death of Qian Zhong. So I think as we mentioned earlier, he, in the previous chapter had been um, having this kind of dalliance or uh, romantic relationship with Sapientia, the young um, nun initiate at the Watermoon Priory. And then after they left, she flees the nunnery to try to be with him. She's discovered. uh, Qian Zhong's father finds out. He beats him very severely. He then has a relapse of his own illness and dies. And so Qian Zhong himself kind of lapses into this sort of despair induced illness but even though he's sick and quite seriously so um his death is kind of rather sudden so most of the characters in the jia clan are kind of uh they're all caught up in the excitement over the visitation uh the prospect of yuan chun coming back to to visit and and the new garden they're going to build for her and yeah bao yu is wandering through the through the house um one day when his um his kind of male servant or page um tea leaf um kind of beckons him over um remember tea leaf is uh one of the pages who got involved in that kind of schoolroom fight scene back in i think it was chapter nine um he's kind of tiny and scrappy i imagine and yeah tea leaf tells him that chin jong is on the verge of death and this captures Bao Yu completely by surprise. So he's very keen to kind of rush over and see his friend. And there is a slightly dreamlike quality here, actually, I think, because it comes about very suddenly and unexpectedly in the way that things often do in dreams. And then his quite simple desire, which is just to go next door to the, the Ning household to see his friend, is kind of repeatedly frustrated. First, he has to go and speak to his grandmother. Uh, and she says, okay, fair enough, go and see your friend, but come right back as soon as you're finished. So she kind of tells him off a little bit. And then the carriage to take him over to the other house isn't ready. And he's kind of hopping around from foot to foot, kind of desperately wanting to get over there, waiting for the carriage to get ready. Um, and then eventually when it does get there, he kind of tells him to go with all, with all speed over to, the, over to the next door house. And then there's this brief, rather tragic scene where Qin Zhong is already kind of on the verge of death. He's been, he had been sleeping on a, a kang, which is this, uh, it's like a brick bed um, where you build a kind of 
oven or stove into the body of the bed so that the person sitting or lying on top of it uh, enjoys the warmth of the stove directly. They've lifted him off that and onto another bed. And Hawkes says here, uh, in accordance with the northern custom, which forbids a sick man to breathe his last on the kang, he had sometimes since been lifted onto a trestle bed to die. So it's really the end of the road for him at this point. He seems kind of unresponsive. One of his uh, servants tries to comfort him, saying that you know they've only they've taken him off the kang, not because he's about to die, but because it's it's a hard surface and he'd be more comfortable on the trestle bed. But we can tell that that's kind of a just an excuse. In the Hawks, it says uh, Qin Zhong's soul had already left his body, and the few faint gasps of breath in his failing lungs were the only life that now remained in it. So it's not looking good. It's not looking good for Qin Zhong. This is a moment where we get the first kind of glimpse of uh, how the underworld is going to be represented. Um, and it's reminiscent of what we saw uh, in the uh, Jare chapter, uh, where there's... Um, it's kind of the underworld is portrayed as like a, a prison with a, a heavily bureaucratized structure. Yeah. Um, there's a warrant for his death, you know, in the way there's, there would be a warrant for one's arrest uh, and chains to bind him. Um, it's, it's very interesting that, isn't it? Because I remember we commented on the same phenomenon when uh, uh, Jia Baoyu has his dream sequence in chapter five that even in this fairy land of illusions which is completely different from the from the human world it's still ordered in a similar bureaucratic kind of way and the same is Mm -hmm. completely true of um of the underworld here Mm -hmm. one thing that was interesting to me in in the language used is that the author refers to the underworld as yin jian um and the upper world, the human world, as yang jian. So, you know, it's a very common, like, visual motif uh, to know about the idea of yin-yang, you know, the the dark and the light constantly in, in mm-hmm. contrast and conflict. But it was interesting to me to see the living world represented very clearly as the world of yang and the world of the dead represented as the world of yin. Mm-hmm. That wasn't something I'd seen before. I- Maybe it's comparable to our uh, like nether world, right? I, I think the connotations are, are similar. Maybe I think so. Um, and so, actually, uh, Qin Zhong he wants he uh, he hears in a sense uh, Bao Yu calling out for him, and he wants to go back to say you know at least to say a final goodbye. Uh, and he gets into sort of an argument with the uh, the guards, the ministers of the underworld sent to you know drag his soul away right um and, and they're like you know you can't we can't, you can't go back uh they have a in, in the hawks it reads you're an educated young man haven't you heard the saying if yama calls at midnight hour no man can put off death until four um and so they they uh they quote their, you know, we are ministers of the netherworld. Uh, we all have unbending iron natures, which is, I, I think in the previous, we, previously we spoke about the, uh, the Tiekang Se uh, as the um, iron threshold temple. And the idea was uh, like the matters of life and death are uh, 
unyielding, just like iron, just like uh, metal. Um, and so maybe we see the same kind of uh, kind of referential space here. Um, all then, but all of a sudden, one of the uh, one of the ministers, you know, realizes, and and he's kind of surprised, almost uh, alarmed. You know, it's it's not anybody that's calling Qin Zhong back. It's it's Bao Yu. Um, yeah, that, and I guess like uh, Qin Zhong, he he gives, he talks about who Bao Yu is, and you know how he's a descendant of you know the Duke of of Rongguo. Um, and suddenly their tune changes, right? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, it, it's not explicitly referred to here, but I think part of the reason why. I understood them to be kind of to take a different view on this is because he's the bearer of this magical jade, right? You know, this is this is almost the power of the jade overcoming the the iron unbending mm -hmm. natures of the civil servants of the afterworld. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, even it's explicit in the text uh, where in the Hoxie reads the trepidation of their leader, who was thinking perhaps more of. Value's demon-repelling talisman than of its wearer, uh, and so they allow Qin Zhong to regain consciousness for a moment uh, to see, you know, to see his friend and to have this final nice, um, dramatic and soulful moment before uh, before know. he disappears for good. Yeah, and in the usual way. The story of Qin Zhong's death does kind of spill over slightly into the next chapter, but I think it makes sense just to kind of close it out now. Mm -hmm. You know, he regains consciousness briefly, but he's unable to speak, we think, because his throat is so clogged up. And so he can only look at him and slowly shake his head, and then he slides into the dark. And we hear then that basically uh, Bao Yu is understandably very upset. Um, there is a funeral for him, there's some uh time given over to mourning um and Bao Yu himself continues to mourn Qin Zhong for a long time even though everyone else kind of moves on and then we hear that you know eventually he himself did come to terms with or, or find some kind of accommodation with his grief and the loss of his friend um and was able to kind of continue you know keeping on mm -hmm. but one of the things that's so interesting to me is that Qin Zhong is the he's the younger brother of uh Qin Shi, right? Whose whose death and funeral took up the better part of three chapters, and who was given forty nine days mourning and all kinds of monks mm. and priests and um religious figures were called in and there was a very grand funeral and no expense was spared and they had all sorts of important wealthy dignitaries come to pay their respects. And the same formalities are not extended to her brother. Whereas she's given 49 days or seven by seven, he's given just seven days mourning. And all we hear is that Jia Bayu's grandmother, Grandmother Jia, contributes kind of 30 or 40 tales of silver towards the funeral expenses and, and offerings for the dead. And that's more or less all we hear, you know? It's a sad end. It's this kind of sudden one. And it is a very notable contrast with mm -hmm. the way his sister departs this earth yeah 
I had a similar reaction. That contrast seems intentional. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure what else I have to say though. What, like, what, what do you think? Is there a, like a? Is this another instance of Bao Yu's coming of age, where you know he's dealing with the death of a, a close friend? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think um, there's a definite loss of there's a loss of innocence there. I mean, of course, he has recently dealt with the death of Qin Shi as well, and she was herself a very important character. Uh, a very important... Sh- she was very important to him, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But this one somehow feels, yeah, a little bit more personal. I guess just thinking about this chapter overall, you know, important things happen in it. We have Yuan Chun's elevation to the, the imperial bedchamber. We have this thing about visitation and redesigning the garden and so on and so forth. We have the deaths of Qin Bangye and Qin Zhong, and I guess various other bits beside. But at the same time, it does feel kind of in-betweeny, you know? It feels... It doesn't hang together as neatly as some of the other other chapters do. Definitely not. Yeah, this could be maybe like a, a counterexample to my every chapter a dream theory. Although we do see a little bit... Um, this kind of reminds me a little bit of the chapter where Jare dies, uh, where there is, uh, it's mostly very uh, grounded material conflicts and concerns. But then at the very end, there is this, um, this touch of uh, the supernatural. I, I would agree. That, that seems to be the parallel that keeps emerging in my mind. Um, um, so how about we... How about we end it there? What do you think? Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, so, uh, again, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, this has been another exciting installation of Rereading the Stone. Uh, as always, get in touch with us. Um, we are on Twitter at Rereading Stone. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Rereading the Stone, and a Reddit page, reddit.com slash r slash rereading the stone and so until next time uh stay safe out there bye-bye take care